This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome, guys and gals, to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and personalities to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle shows that brings you tools previously only available to elite high performers. We may not have all the answers, but we do have all the questions. Make sure to stay up to date with The Art of Charm and get some great free content that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. If you like what you hear on the show, come hang out with us on the blog where we really get in-depth on some of these topics and you can further engage with the AOC team there as well. Or if you're new to the show and you want to find out more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, you can go to the website and we'll email you our fundamentals toolkit that covers topics like body language and nonverbal communication, dating and attraction, persuasion, business business networking, negotiation, relationship management, public speaking, and a whole lot more. We've also got our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. In fact, we've got guys from all over the world, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you wanna learn and grow. We're sold out five to six months in advance, so if you're even thinking about it a little bit, you should get in touch ASAP by phone or just email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. Get some info from us now so you can plan ahead. Looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we're talking with my buddy Dan Martell. He just got his one of his umpteenth companies acquired. He was the founder of Clarity.fm, and he also founded Flowtown, if you've heard of that, if you're in that whole scene. Right now he's taking a little bit of a work-life balance break, and we're gonna talk a little bit about that, what it's like to get your company acquired, starting off as a criminal, and evolving to an entrepreneur, why it's important to hustle to help and add value wherever you can, why you should never listen to your parents, and last but not least, why motivation trumps knowledge. So enjoy this one with Dan Martell. What do you do in one sentence? And the answer is not a whole hell of a lot right now, but go ahead and tell us anyway. <laughs> not a lot. What do I do in one sentence? I help entrepreneurs scale. That's cool. That's a new one. I like the scale thing because that's something that most people can't do or fail to do or do wrong. Um, and before the show, we were chatting about how he sold Clarity, Clarity.fm, which I actually use, and then is like, I'm taking a year off and then went freaking crazy after not doing anything aside from hanging out with the kids for six months. Do you think that that balance of the swing in the other direction with the pendulum of just, like just hanging out with your wife and kids 24 seven, was that a reaction from not being able to do enough of that while you were building companies, getting acquired, which I assume is somewhere along the lines of final exams times 10, but for a really long time? Bananas, yeah. I mean, most people don't realize that getting acquired is just such a open cavity type scenario where, you know, it's just a lot of, a lot of work. But yeah, I guess it wasn't even that. It was more that the last, you know, I've built five companies in my career and I didn't take any time, you know, and I sold the last three. And I kept saying like, oh, the next one, I'm going to like travel more. I'm going to do something. And I never did it. I just got, you know, it's, I just had another idea or some other thing that was pulling at me and I just couldn't sleep at night and I kind of built it. And, and I figured if I didn't do something drastic, like make that claim and tell the world and go into my calendar and clear it out and, and we actually moved to San Francisco and like really just do it, 
I would wake up in like another 15 years going like, why haven't I spent more time traveling? And again, my kids are really small. They're like a year and a half and two and a half. So I felt like it was good timing. But uh, that was really the motivation was I really went back to back companies like we're talking weeks between. Um, so I, I didn't feel like I had a chance to recharge. What happens when you get acquired? First of all, just to define it for, because not most of the people who listen are not entrepreneurs and just never will be because they don't care. But I want to define acquisition because I think most people know, but many don't. It's when one company buys your company or another company, but in this case, your company from you and your shareholders. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially there's mergers or acquisition. Mergers is kind of when two companies like each other and they combine to be a bigger company. And an acquisition is where you know, in my last company, Intuit acquired our technology and our expertise. And essentially, we became a division within that bigger entity. And they usually pay either cash or stock to acquire that technology and the team and that expertise so that they can increase the revenue. And the reason that you do that is that you get acquired is because you get a big payday, ideally. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, especially if you're a venture-backed company, meaning you've raised capital from other investors for, for shares in your company. So that's really the only outcome. It's called a liquidity event. And either you go public, so you sell your shares on the public uh, stock market, so like the NASDAQ or the uh, New York Stock Exchange, or you get acquired, which is essentially a private transaction where they, they buy those same shares to kind of generate that return for your investors and your team and all the people that had uh, essentially motivation or some kind of outcome involved with, uh, with your company. So it's basically a proctology exam from accountants. <laughs> when you go through the acquisition, so there's kind of two phases. There's like the term sheet, which is like, you know, you might talk to like, you know, three or four companies that want to buy you and they all put together their offer. So it's called a term sheet. And then from that point, the term sheet to the close, that's where the, you know, the rubber gloves come on. And I mean, you're getting code audits, your team's getting interviewed by their team. They're talking to customers. It's such a crazy time in the, the history of your business because for most people when they're building companies, they're just heads down talking to customers and creating, you know, new features and, and presses releases and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden you go quiet and then, you know, the gloves come on and everything gets reviewed. And you wonder if, if what you created is actually like a sacred cow or just a cow. Like it's just so funny. Oh dude, yeah, I've totally been through those. You're you're basically bent over the table looking at the check on the wall saying, okay, do what you got to do. Just get it done so we can we can move on. Totally going, I wonder if this is going to get positive in my hand or if it's going to totally get ripped in front of my face. Because really, you, you, once you sign the term sheet, you can't shop the deal anymore. And for whatever reason, if the acquirer feels like something was misrepresented, the whole thing can go south. And 30% of the time, it does. So oh, one, wow, that's a lot. Of, yeah. That's high. Yeah, no, most entrepreneurs don't realize when they're in that, you know, that acquisition process a third of the time. And I've been involved in companies I've invested in. You know, one of them, I can't mention the name, but it was Yahoo. And, and they were, <laughs> I can't, no, I can't mention the acquiring company. Oh, okay. I was like, I can't mention the name Ford because. Sounds like Yahoo. Anyways, and uh, <laughs> it was an interview with Yahoo's team and their senior developer. And the guy was just a total dork. Oh, man. And by dork, I mean, not a nice guy. Right. And essentially, Yahoo was like, we don't like this guy. We don't think. And he was kind of like the mad scientist that knew how the whole thing worked. And they kiboshed the deal. And the CEO was totally like, obviously upset. And I told him, I was like, man, you, you need to do interview prep. Like, that's like step one 
your team's going to go talk to the choir. You got to sit down with them and look them in the face and say like, this is the time to not say something crazy. That's interesting because you never think of an acquisition as essentially job interview with much higher stakes. You think, oh, well, they looked at all these spreadsheets that our people made and now they want to buy us. But at the end of the day, it's not just hiring one person like in a job interview. You're maybe hiring 150, 1,000, 10,000 people. And that's the thing is they're betting that the value today, like they're going to pay a premium, right, for, for kind of not what it's doing today, but what it could do in like three to five years. And that's only going to happen if the people involved stick around and there's no huge culture clash. So the other thing is the truth is 70% of acquisitions go south, you know, post acquisition. You know, there's a few handful of companies like a Facebook where they can buy Instagram and uh, WhatsApp and, and really not screw it up. Whereas most acquiring companies don't know how to properly do that. There's a whole process behind it to do it right. I've, I've luckily been involved quite a few times now, but you know, the people part is huge. I'm curious about that because when I, I go to other companies around here to speak or to hang out or see the office, you can tell a bad acquisition because the people in one area of the floor who got acquired by the parent company, uh, maybe also Yahoo or Rhymes with it, are kind of looking depressed and they're like, yeah, maybe I'm gonna get another job, I don't know. There's that kind of acquisition. And then there's the other kind of acquisition where it gets done and what happens is they get some new logistical resources and they get better. Yeah, it's like infusion of energy. Like, I mean, yeah, you know, it's funny, the, the first version of that, we call it vesting in peace. So usually nice. after the acquisition, there's like a two year vesting period where if you stick around, you get kind of like a bonus. And, you know, I remember the first time we got acquired, I, I was just having a really hard time with the acquiring company and kind of the promises they made. And I, I reached out to my investor who had sold his company to MySpace. And I said, dude, how did you deal with that? And he was like, Here's what you do. You go in your calendar and you drag from 8.30 a.m. till 6 p.m. And you do that for every day and stay in your office and just deal with it. Damn, you just trudge through the shite. Vest in peace. I was like, <laughs> he's like, don't cause a ruckus. You know, stay out of stuff. Because he says, and he, and he made a good sense. He says, like, entrepreneurs, like founders, we're like chaotic Ferraris. We just know how to build and create at speeds that just do not make sense to big companies. And if they invite us into meetings, most of the time we'll get frustrated or say the wrong things or piss people off. And that was some good advice. I lasted six weeks. Yikes. Yeah. And then quickly moved on to clarity. It's kind of surprising because I do not consider myself like a wise entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. Like I, I built this business with my partners. There's been a million mistakes. It's not a billion dollar valuation, et cetera. But then I'll talk to these guys who run companies that are worth 500, 600 million dollars. Maybe they get retired and sold it and stuff like that and they're onto something new. And we'll be having dinner and I'm like, so just random question, I'm sure you thought of this. How come you didn't do this? Like, you know, one example is, how come you don't syndicate your most popular podcasts on your network on the radio because you're in the radio business and you were for 40 years? And the guy goes, we could totally do that. I think we should maybe look at that. Um, in fact, I'm going to write that down. And I'm thinking, how did I think of this over potato skins appetizers? <laughs> and this is like your whole life. And you're in this new business that you invested $25 million into. It's like uh, the Big Lebowski. That had not occurred to us, dude. Never. No, I mean, it's. I think people give us founders way too much credit for the quality of our ideas or where we get our inspiration and you know, I think, I think if anything, we're just, we're, we're humble and open enough to take that input and just execute like nobody's business. Yeah. 
that's the one thing I feel like, you know, I don't need to be the smartest person. I just have to not kind of think myself out of a good idea, which is what normal people do. Yeah. Once it makes it through the bureaucracy of a company, it's no longer even the same idea and it's terrible, no. even if, if it was ever good. So you had kind of a rough childhood though. I mean, a lot of people, when they write in, they're like, yeah, you know, but you had this good education and your parents are still married. So, you know, you didn't have to worry about things like survival. And so it's, of course you started this company or, or some variation of why what we were able to do at the Art of Charm, they can't do because whatever. Yeah, no, it's funny because I always joke with people, I had a colorful upbringing and I just kind of air quotes that and let them think what they want. But I mean, the truth was, is, you know, at 11 years old, I was taken out of my home because I was having, you know, I had behavior issues. I was, I was an angry child, I guess you could call it. And uh, I bounced between group homes and foster homes and eventually found myself in jail for drug related charges when I was 15. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was nuts. And like, and it was really just because at a study young, young age, I was surrounded, you know, I was 12, 13 in group homes surrounded by guys that were 16, 17 years old that right. didn't have the best habits. Yeah, your mentorship was like purely yeah. terrible. It was Shane, this guy Shane that was teaching me how to shave before I even hit puberty and like also was there for nine months for dealing cocaine or something. You know, it was just it was just bananas, the kind of conversations I was having at such a young age. So yeah, I mean, my, my life kind of spun out of control. And then at 17, even though the first time I went, I said, there's no way I'm going to be back here. I think it was like day one, I got out and I was just back at it with the same group of folks and, and things just spun out of control. And 17, I got into high speed chase, uh, told myself I wasn't going back, had a gun in a bag, crashed into a house, pulled the gun, it got stuck. And luckily, the cops pulled me out of the car, my feet didn't even hit the ground and woke up the next day sober. And that was the beginning of the new life. Jeez. So anybody out there who's thinking I didn't have the advantages of a good upbringing or whatever else, just remember at least you didn't get pulled out of a car armed in Canada, hammered or whatever the hell is going on. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, it's crazy to think about it because I almost feel like it's like watching a movie today. You know, I'm, I'm 35 now, so it was about like 15, 16 years ago. And I feel really blessed to kind of gone through and had the success and business that I've had in the family life I have today. It's just kind of a two different worlds, you know, even yeah. relationship with my family and my, my brothers and sisters are just amazing. You know, we're all entrepreneurs now, which, which I think actually plays to that strength. I think at a young age, I learned to take care of myself. And it turns out that being an entrepreneur is a great place to be if that's kind of your mindset. Yeah, I think you're onto something with that with taking care of yourself. And in addition, I hate to say this, but you were way ahead of your time in that you were exposed to a lot of stuff at a young age. So to start businesses and go all in was not necessarily that, I shouldn't say difficult. It wasn't even yeah. all in. I mean, when people say like, I remember I was speaking at Waterloo, like a bunch of tech nerds, I shouldn't say that, but. Of which you are one of them. <clears throat> bunch of really smart, intelligent engineers, yeah. That's how you get beat up at Yahoo, yeah. But they, this guy asked me, you know, where did you think you got your business risk? acumen and I was just laughing inside like I didn't want to go into that story but it was kind of funny because like today worst case I have to like I'll lose everything sleep on my brother's couch for a few months and build it back up whereas back in the day it was like you know I could end up with you know dead shot you sure. know? like it was just two levels of risk that don't even compare so right you know, I just feel I feel lucky that that's kind of what I learned at a young age I wouldn't change a thing you know people always ask that you know I am who I am today I'm pretty happy with that because of what I went through Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now back to Dan Martell. It must be kind of interesting. I mean, I assume your wife and the mother of your children and stuff is not like, put it this way, she wouldn't have dated 20-year-old you because you were a freaking criminal no, no. Most of my, I mean, the funny part is none of my friends would be friends with 20 year old me. You know, no. like I really had a different set of beliefs and values that kind of drove my actions that are just ridiculous. Right. And what's cool is, you know, three, four times a year I go and I, I visit the rehab center. I went to this great place called Portage and I talked to the kids, you know, the 12, 13 year old versions of me. And I kind of share my story because you know, I know that when I was that age, I wasn't listening to anybody that showed up with a degree or some business or some book knowledge. You know, I would, I needed to talk to the guy that had been through it before. So it's really 
cool to kind of go back and, and kind of be reminded, you know, what, what that part of my life looked like. And if I can help one kid just by sharing that story, I, you know, I've been doing it now for 16, 17 years. How did you evolve past those belief systems? Because I've gotten letters here at AOC like, hey, I just got out of jail for homicide. I found your show. I'm 35, like this guy's our age, whatever, 35, 37, I'm starting over. I don't wanna be around the people I was around. I don't know anything else other than that and then jail. And there's other guys that write in and say very similar things. Like, hey, you know, I've, my whole childhood was spent in the ghetto. My dad never knew him. I had a really crummy upbringing. They turned to like religious stuff, which was even more weird. So I have a choice between super culty religion and gang members. And so I moved out of the country and now I'm working in, you know, Burma or whatever. And I can't imagine the difficulty involved in going from not knowing anything of success, not being around it, not having any real role models to do with that at all, and no upbringing in that area, and then going, all right, I've got, because you knew you had to learn this from scratch. And, and I didn't even know what this was, right? right. It, was, it was this belief in a process, you know? And I gotta say, like, when I ask people, because, you know, I've had a lot of time and a lot of therapy to kind of think through all this, and you know, for me, it was this one of this guard named Brian where, you know, in the second time I was in jail, you know, I got in a fight and I was in, I was in solitary for three days. And, you know, he came back from, he was on vacation, he comes back and pulls me out of solitary, sits me down and uh, says to me, he goes, uh, why are you here? And I kind of looked around, you know, I was in like the, the guard unit that kind of overlooked the different cell blocks. And I was like, you know, I got in a high speed chase, you know, I'm not a good person. And he goes, no, he goes, why are you here? And I was like, what is he talking about? Like, is, is he crazy? And he goes, you know, I've seen the other kids around you and you're not like them. You're different. And I just believe you shouldn't be here. And that was, a, I was 17. That was the first time in my whole life that anybody had ever said that. And I can't tell you that that was the only thing, but it was definitely a moment where somebody else saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself. And they, communicated that. And I can't tell you how I don't take for granted every small opportunity as I go throughout my day or talking to entrepreneurs when I'm, you know, speaking at universities or on stage, that if I feel that and I, I should say it, I have a responsibility to say like, I know you can be great because Brian did that for me. And my life became different. And, and I don't know if people that are listening to this have that person or, or they feel that way. But I mean, that to me is, you know, when I ask entrepreneurs, like, you know, who is that person that did that for you? They can all point to that person, right? It, it could have been a mentor. It could have been a phone call. It could have been just this one in passing somebody, they did something at a job and somebody said something that made them feel like, hey, man, I better not, you know, this person sees something that I don't even see. I better kind of step up to not feel guilty for not kind of honoring his kind of thoughts. And, you know, I think that's the first step is to find somebody else in the world that believes in you more than you believe in yourself because that'll set you on a path that I think will will start that kind of healing process. Why do you think your parents didn't do that? It's kind of a, a weird situation today because, you know, my mom was an alcoholic and who knows if she still deals with it. We kind of don't talk about it. You know, she's still part of my life. And my, my dad was in sales, so he was always on the road and, and never really saw the home life. You know, we grew up, I had two other brothers and a sister. And, you know, I just think it was like kind of a different time. And I feel like there, this could be still happening today. So if you're a parent and you think just because you're nice to your kids, that's not enough. You know, like I really feel like you've got to tell them you love them. You got to tell them, 
what they're good at and be supportive and be present. And, and I just feel like maybe it's a cultural thing and it's less now and, and people are a bit more open with their feelings. But I know for a fact it still happens. And it's not about like, I wasn't physically or, you know, sexually abused growing up. You know, I was diagnosed with ADHD at eight years old, put on medication, which told me I was broken. Turns out I have a superpower. So yeah, I have that too. It's screw them. But for a while, that's what I thought, which would made, you know, made me freak out and get angry, you know, and growing up, it was just a different world. And, and that's the thing. It's like, I don't blame anybody for kind of what I did because I know that I'm responsible for my outcomes. And, you know, the biggest thing for me is just make sure I didn't repeat that behavior as a father now because I know how easy that could have been. You know, I put a lot of time in to make sure that didn't happen. Yeah, it's funny because I, I get along really well with my parents and my dad's an amazing guy now. But when I was younger, he was, you know, kind of a tyrant. And the, so one of the worst things somebody can say is, you're just like your dad. And I'm like, well, I hope you mean in the good way and not in the way that drove me crazy until I was 30. That would be nice. But I, I gotta say though, I don't know if it was a different time, maybe for you personally, but you're 35, not 135, you know? Yeah. So generationally, it's not that, but I'm just wondering if you have tips for, or advice, it wouldn't even be tips, for advice for somebody who's listening to this right now and going, my parents are no help. And not necessarily because they're alcoholics or absent, but maybe they work blue collar jobs and you know that that's not for you, but you don't have a way to kind of get out of that. You don't have to be like a criminal to take this advice. Any type of mindset or evolutionary advice that you can give when it comes to figuring this stuff out would be greatly welcome. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the big thing, and that's it's what I learned, you know, out of all places was, is in rehab, was just be around other people that, are on the journey that you want to be on. So, and, and that's the thing is most of us have aspirations that have kind of a, a more impactful life or a fuller life or, or whatever kind of life than their parents had. So if you turn to your parents for your big life decisions, which most kids do, don't be surprised in 20 years if you have the exact same life your parents have because you did what they would do, which is going to get you what they got. So I was lucky that once I got into entrepreneurship and, and, I say once I got in, it took me seven years of failing. So even though we talked about a lot of the success I've had recently, there was a couple uh, shitty starts. And, you know, it was really finding other people that were on that journey and that path that were kind enough to kind of, you know, essentially be my mentor and advisors and spend time with me and talk to me. And I just learned that behavior of being around good people when I was 17, getting clean, and that transferred into business. But I think that's like the biggest thing is you can't, we're such a reflection of our peer group that if you could just try to find some way to, to spend more time with better people, it'll rub off. You don't even have to do anything. You just spend time with them. This is kind of back to something that's very commonly taught at Art of Charm, which is your, you only go as high as your five closest friends or, or some variation thereof. Totally. And that's kind of what Clarity was designed to attack in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, that, my vision for the product, which was a network for uh, expert advice, you know, as you went through life, I built it for the 17 year old entrepreneur that, again, failed a couple times before I finally figured it out. Because I, I grew up in a small town of 100,000 people in eastern Canada, and there were no other tech entrepreneurs. I mean, the best thing I had was my friend Nick, who owned a sign shop. And his business acumen was, you should be late for every meeting with a customer because it shows them you're busy. So you must be good. Um, so real high quality business advice. Right. And, you know, so clarity was just this really neat idea that if you had a way to, to connect to people that have been through it or have expertise that you need over the phone in real time, um, how would that change your outcome for your business, your day or whatever? And 
you know, it's kind of following that same paradigm. You know, the reason why we raised uh, 1.6 million in venture capital and guys like Mark Cuban and were investors was that we thought there was an opportunity and it continues to, we keep growing every week as record weeks right now at Clarity around indexing people's expertise and, and making that available to the rest of the world. It's kind of like Google did that with web pages and we wanted to do it for people's knowledge. I'm on Clarity. I use it as a way to, when people ask me for business advice, which is literally every day, I hate to say it, I send them to the Clarity page and 99 out of 100 are like, oh no, I don't actually want to. Yeah, they wanted the free coffee pick your brain version, right. but when it comes to respecting your time, they're kind of like, uh, maybe I could get that from somebody else. Right, yeah, like no, I'll keep asking until I get the free advice and, and it's like, go ahead, but sometimes you get what you pay for. Somebody who doesn't have time to do this stuff for free and bear in mind, I donate a lot of this stuff to charity and now you can actually do that automatically on Clarity is just click yep. a charity box and it automatically goes to charity. But if you won't even pay charity money or cash to, to get the advice, I know that you won't use it so I'm wasting my time and you know that you don't value it as well. So. Yeah, no, and the cool part is, is, you know, from a price point of view, we have, you know, 70, 80% of our experts are dollar a minute. So if, you know, if it's not like you want to talk to Mark Cuban, yeah, he's 10 grand an hour, but he's 10 grand an hour because for the right person with the right business, you know, that hour will turn into a five, $10 million return, right? It's not, well, yeah. you know, but if you're just getting started, you may not need to talk to Jordan or Dan. You could start with like a hundred other people that'll get you through the quit your job, start the business phase. And then when you really want to scale it up, then you reach out to people that are at that level. And I feel like that's, that was why we built it as both a way for experts to make themselves available. Because the cool part about Clarity is, you know, we have 50,000 experts from around the world. And these are not people that normally, like yourself, do consulting, right? They're good at what they do. And because of that, they have a profile and people reach out to them and they just needed a more efficient way to make themselves available versus saying no all the time or archiving the email, not even responding. Yeah, that's what I would found I was doing. I was giving these like, categorical replies that were basically just polite no's and or direct no and or fluff advice, which I personally hate, combined mm. with like, here's a bunch of other resources, which they'd probably already Googled, and if they hadn't, then they're not supposed to be talking to me about that anyway. Um, oh. So now I can go, yeah, if you're willing to pay for this, then you can get it, and it, it's such a useful thing. Uh, a friend of mine is on their and he had called Tucker Max, who's another buddy of mine, about some branding and positioning, and he spent like 600 bucks on the phone with Tucker Max, and he's like, my whole business is based around that advice, and he's successful. Dude, so, I call, I mean, I've done 1,300 calls as an expert, so just wait a lot crazy. My wife's like, why do you wow. do so many calls? But I, again, I wanna be helpful and, and available, and I'm obviously the founder and CEO, so I feel responsible to do that, but I probably spent, you know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 on other experts, guys like, uh, never Tucker, but, Ryan Holiday. Ryan gave us our press and PR plan. I mean, I might have spent a thousand dollars in an hour phone call with Ryan, and he mapped out the next twelve months of our business, you know, marketing strategy. Brilliant mind. Um, guys like Clay Bear. I mean, just the quality of the experts that I, I just feel so grateful that are making themselves available on Clarity um, really allowed us to build the business because if you're struggling with like trying to understand Google Analytics, you know, we've got some of the people that wrote the books on Clarity, so you could read the book for 15, 20 bucks, or you could just get on a 30 minute phone call and have the person tell you exactly what you need to do for your business. Yeah. And I, I find that's fascinating. Yeah, I think it's deceptively simple and yet brilliant at the same time, because like you said, yes, 10 grand is a lot if you just wanna say you called Mark Cuban and put it on your Facebook profile, but if you've got <laughs> 
an idea of some kind that you need vetted by somebody who's crushed it and done a bunch of different things that you can't just read about online, it might be worth 10 times that. Easily. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are legitimate, like the people using Clarity, these are people that value time and money as well. So like these are very successful eight-figure year business entrepreneurs and they have no problem spending a couple thousand dollars an hour to talk to that guy that's going to save them months or worse or best case and save them from making a decision to go down a path that would just be a waste of time. You know, like they get it. I wish I'd had it years ago because if you look at all the money we wasted and you look at the ways in which we may have avoided it by talking with people not as who market themselves as experts, which are the guys we hired and got screwed, but the guys who actually have done it. Yes, yeah. exactly. No, that's, that's the beauty. I mean, when you know, the again, when I was 17, I went to this place called Portage and what was unique about this rehab center was that all the staff there were extra addicts, you know? So really great people giving you advice to tell you kind of when you feel like you're in that hole, like where to put your hands and your feet to climb out. You know, versus somebody who just read the book or was saying they were an expert trying to tell you how it's supposed to work. And that lesson just continued with me my whole life and was really the genesis for clarity. Now back to Dan Martell. You've learned a couple of powerful lessons and, and we talked about that before the show. I would love to get into that, one of which is never listen to your parents, which I think is funny because no matter how good your upbringing was, sometimes, I don't know anybody that's like, I definitely should have done more of this, unless it comes to personal stuff, in which case your parents probably have good advice. But when it comes to business stuff, there's your version, which is like, you had a rough, rocky road upbringing, don't listen to your parents, and there's other people who had like the leave it to beaver upbringing, and they still come away with that same conclusion if they're mm. paying attention in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, the, the philosophy, I guess we kind of touched on it was, if you look at what your parents have accomplished in life and, and that's what you want, like if your dad's Bill Gates or Steve Jobs, yeah, okay. okay, cool, of course, get their advice and suck it up. And I know you don't want to hear it, but that's some good sources. Yeah. But if you have aspirations to do more and it's not, a, and I don't know why people have this hang up about like, is that bad that I want to be wealthier than my parents? Like, no, like no, you're I think as to. a parent or a human being, our responsibility to the rest of the world is to have each generation be better. Like that's what makes us human. So you know, aspire to do bigger, better things than your parents. And if that's the case, then go get advice from the people that are doing it that way, or you'll end up doing exactly what your parents had. And it's not a bad thing. Like I love my dad. We talk all I was just having dinner with him last night and he is the coolest dude to ask for business advice because he's got so many crazy, interesting stories. But the truth is, is I don't internalize and I don't execute on a lot of it because he never started his own company and he never really, you know, went through the motions and there's just so much context that's lacking. I listen to him in the sense that we have conversations. I just don't internalize their criteria or criticism of my ideas because those are the people that I look up to. And I think choosing who you look up to is probably just as important as who you spend time with. Did you go to college? Did you get a bunch of formal education as well? No, self-taught, man. I, I Honestly, I discovered a, a yellow book on Java programming in uh, one of the rooms in this place called Portage. So I actually learned to code while I was in rehab and changed my life. And then I discovered the internet, which was kind of freaking awesome. So well, yeah. learn how to program computers is kind of cool. But then once I got on, on the online, it was on like Donkey Kong, like websites, web apps. I mean, I built my first app was actually, uh, was this programming language called Visual Basic. It was like the oh, first yeah. kind of object-oriented visual programming. And, and I built this way for people to build burnt CDs 
at home using my MP3s that I download and build the CD and then order it. You know, they would just like submit their order for their CD. Because I was like one the, the first kid on the block with a, a CD burner. Right, which paid for itself in a week because you sold CDs for 20 bucks that were custom. I just didn't want them to be on my computer building their freaking girlfriend's mixtape, you know? So I built this little app that would synchronize with my MP3s and they could build it at home and then submit it. And that was the first kind of commercial type app that I built. It was totally illegal, but yeah. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it was kind of... It was neat, man. I don't know. I still, I'll still never forget and why I feel so grateful to be in this industry that, you know, we live in a world where if I build something, you know, a web app or an iPhone app that anybody with the internet can, can see it. I think we take it for granted that we get to do that where our creations are accessible by anybody. Whereas when I grew up, my dad, he worked on like electrical mortars. Like I have no clue what he did. I don't even know what that is. Yeah. Like he just big engines and generators. But whereas, you know, everybody on this call can go check out Clarity. One of your mottos is hustle to help. And mm. I kind of, I love that because our motto is leave everything better than you found it, which is kind of similar in a lot of ways, at least from what it sounds like. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, to me, I just, I believe like first principles in the world is you should give back to others before you ever expect. You know, I think the world would be better if we all went out of our way to kind of try to, Yeah, and it's funny because it's counterintuitive, you know? So like when I grew up, I don't know what it was in me. It was like kind of like just my DNA, I guess, that I was, you know, I grew up this way where I, I would walk by, you know, somebody homeless on the on the street and I would like empty my pocket. And I and I was like, you know, 12, 13 years old. I had no clue what that meant. Like I didn't know that they were going to go get drunk or, or, or not. I don't know. But, you know, I was just like, it was always in me to give. And then when I got into business, I kind of, I kept that kind of approach up, which was I would never, ever ask for anything until I felt like I could create value for somebody. And I still believe that today. So that's why like, you know, the hustle to help is really just go out of your way to help other people first, then great things will happen. But it's kind of weird because most people will be like, well, if you don't have money, how can I give money? It's like, well, you can give other things. You can create other value for people and, you know, it'll come back and you don't know how. Recently, I got invited to spend a week with Richard Branson at his house in Switzerland. And people ask me like, how did, you know, how did you get invited to, to spend a week at his house? And I was like, you know what? The truth is, four years ago, I invited a guy that moved from New York City, San Francisco to a dinner. He happened to have such a great time and thought it was amazing that, a, you know, he was a stranger to me at the time. I'd invite him to this dinner and introduce him to all these people. We stayed kind of internet friends. And it turns out he's friends with Richard Branson. And when Richard said, hey, I'd love to get to a group of entrepreneurs getting, uh, that are helping other entrepreneurs together to talk about how we can have a bigger impact in the world. You know, he remembered my name and he, he extended the invite. So you never know how it's going to work out. But I just believe it's a really great motto to live by and uh, just makes things better. I've got some fear of missing out when it comes to hearing about a lot of those different events. And the more I go to high level networking type or not networking, they're not actually that, the worst place to meet people is networking events. But that but I digress. The, the meet and greet type of or mastermind talks, those types of really high quality events the more I'm like, wow, these are really amazing. But I, I have to wonder at some level, what what was it like going over to a billionaire's house in Switzerland and hanging out? Is it is it like, oh my God, this is amazing, holy grail? Or is it like, eh, this is cool, but Mastermind Talks is fun too, and they're all kind of, at some level, very similar. You know, it, I, I'm not gonna lie. I thought when I got the email, it was like May, and I thought for sure it was like April 1st, and he was gonna be like, gotcha, oh, sucker, right, Like, yeah. that's just bananas. I grew up. So let's not kid around here. Like I read Richard's books. 
it was a crazy scenario. Honestly, till I was at his house and he showed up, did I even think it was really going to happen? Right. But, you know, the big thing that I took away from that is the people there were very similar that, that you would meet. You know, so Tim Ferriss was there and um, the founder of Braintree, Brian, who sold this company for like 800 million. And, you know, I totally felt like, okay, I'm not worthy, but, you know, somehow I got invited. So I got to kind of do my part again, create value. Mm -hmm. Right. So like I had clarity and it was neat because a lot of them had clarity on their phone. So they were like, oh, you built Clarity. I use Clarity. I'm like, oh, that's freaking awesome. So yeah, no kidding. I remember one night for dinner, I sat next to Richard and, you know, he asked me about my business. And dude, he said something that to this day touched me. So like my heart, he just, he, he asked me what I did. And I told him kind of my history real quick and what I was doing with Clarity. And he goes, your parents must be proud. I don't know why him saying that to me, just like as a kid, we always hope that we make our parents proud and maybe they don't tell us enough or we don't hear it. But that was pretty cool that some, you know, somebody like him said that. But in regards to the lessons learned, there was three big ones I took away from that week. Uh, one was that brand is everything. You know, like I've been the kind of guy that builds companies and, and tries to impact a lot of people, but then, you know, I've always sold them. So I've always started and created brands from scratch. <laughs> Obviously, my take from Richard's feedback to me was, Hey, you know, maybe you should try to build a brand. And even if you build and sell, like try to do it within the same company. And I thought that was really interesting. So that was a big takeaway. The second one was that life is integrated, you know, so like business and life, like I've always felt guilty, I think, and less and less now, but I always felt guilty about kind of mixing both where, you know, talking talk shop at dinner tables or whatever, my brothers, because we're all entrepreneurs, I always felt guilty about that. And here's a guy that, you know, not only is his wife there and is, is, is he fly, he travels with his, you know, family invites people, like it's all just one thing. It's his life. And he made me feel okay to do that. And since that moment, and it's been you know a little over a year, I've invited people to my house for lunches. I've hosted events at my house. Like I've really tried to just make it just one thing and not try to separate it and feel guilty about that. So that was pretty cool. And the third thing was that if people is everything for him. Essentially, the way he builds companies is he'll see an opportunity or somebody will bring it to him. And then he asks who's number two at the number one company. So like, you know, while we were sitting there having breakfast, he's out on the patio having a meeting and in walks in the guy he's meeting with, he introduced us. It's the CEO of Virgin Atlantic. And I was like, so he introduced us and we start chatting. And I was like, so how did you get involved with Virgin Atlantic? He says, well, I was VP of whatever at uh, United. And Richard asked me if I wanted to run his new airline. And then I found out that's his MO. That's how he builds companies, which was so obvious in hindsight. So trust me, like my caliber and, and filter for for A players has really come to a new level because I will definitely be borrowing from that inspiration because, because he does that, he doesn't have to sit on boards. He has like 200 companies or 300 companies. He has co-CEOs of the Virgin Group of companies, multiple billion dollar companies, publicly traded companies, doesn't sit on any boards, doesn't go to any meetings. And essentially all he is is their marketing uh, outlet. So anytime they need him to jump out of a plane or wear a dress or do what, is, do what he does, that's kind of his role in the company. His role is to, <laughs> that must be a nice role. Right. It's to get press. It's to be Richard Branson. You know, he's, somebody said it best. They said he's the billionaire every other billionaire wants to be. Got it. Awesome. Yeah, he is. He's like, if Elon Musk had had way more fun in public, right? <laughs> yeah. Then it would look like that. It's a, you'd have the Tony Stark thing going on for yep. sure. Last but not least, you know, you believe, and or at least you said you believe, that motivation trumps knowledge. Speak mm -hmm. to that if you would, because... 
That's kind of a constant debate on my Facebook wall, our Twitter, the Art of Charm page, inside the Art of Charm family forums, uh, in my email inbox, you know, what's more important, this or that, and everybody's got a different opinion, usually based on their level of education or experience. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a no-brainer kind of, you know, analogy that I like to use is if we were standing on one building and there was another building like 300 feet away with a kind of a skinny uh, plank to walk across, and I said there's 50 bucks on the other side if you walk across, you know, most people aren't even going to take the first step. They're not even going to consider it. They're going to be like, yeah, my life's worth more than that. But you take somebody's family member or their child and you put them on the edge of that plank, you know, in the middle of it, and you ask them what's the willingness to kind of walk across it, they're going to do it. They're going to figure it out, right? And that, to me, is the motivation side of it, because I really believe that people think they need to like get all their ducks in a row and figure out all this stuff. But more than anything, they need to be committed. Their why needs to be stronger than their how, because the how doesn't matter. And and I honestly, like I work with high performing entrepreneurs, like that's kind of my world. I've been fortunate enough to, uh, be invited at the table of those types of people building companies to scale. And one of the first things I need to assess with people is have they claimed their role as the CEO? Like most founders are kind of like technical people or designers or practitioners that kind of stumble their way into becoming a business owner. But for some reason, they haven't like said, I will claim my role as CEO and I will act and create a business. And I don't need to know how to do that. I just need to have the motivation and the vision to pull that off. And I think, you know, if you've read recently Elon Musk's book, it's such a great book because the whole book is essentially stories of him setting unrealistic expectations on everybody else in the world. And just somehow through force of luck and hard work, it's all come together. But it was really through that motivation, not knowing how to build rocket ships and actually not knowing how is probably to his benefit it was a change in thinking for how to solve the problem versus assuming that it's already been solved and it's an incremental improvement. Everything that he calls it first principles, everything that he's created, not knowing how to build a car allowed him to say, well, what would be the best way to build a car? Or recently with the Hyperloop, where he's designed a way for essentially cars to travel from like LA to New York in 45 minutes through this kind of pneumatic tube on magnets. He said, you know, if we had to go from point A to point B, what would be the fastest way? And it turns out airplanes are actually very inefficient. Cars are very inefficient, but this Hyperloop technology would be the right way. So he just kind of built it for fun on a weekend. Almost like we go to like these hackathons. He like sat there with his his rocket ship buddies. They designed this reference document for this thing called the Hyperloop. And like that has nothing to do with how to do it, more the motivation on what is the possibility for the outcome. And to me is... That's something I like to get straight with entrepreneurs when I'm working with them because that matters more to me than talking about, oh, you got to go hire this type of person or you got to figure out these things. That'll all figure itself out and unfold if you get the why right. Where can people connect with you online? What are you doing these days besides hanging out? Yeah, so the best way is uh, through my website, danmartel.com. And I actually have a newsletter I started about six months ago. It's actually built about 10,000 people so far. And um, I started doing these weekly videos. So if you go to danmartel.com slash newsletter um, and sign up for that, I'm doing kind of exclusive video training. I just set up a studio. I feel like I'm slowly catching up to what you and others have seen for a long time, Jordan, just the ability to create content and to kind of teach and, and help other people at scale. Yeah. Uh, it's been super fascinating. And, and again, a new journey for me, but one that's just been so rewarding and, and the ability to 
um, scale my time. Like I really want to have a bigger impact on the world. And I feel super blessed for having learned a lot of the, the things I've learned so far. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm doing it just through my newsletter. Excellent. Well, you can do what the 10 bajillion other entrepreneurs are doing now, which is start a podcast, find out how much work it is, and then quit. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, what's funny is like I've held people, you know, Lewis Howes is a friend and, and John Lee Dumas. And, and I just feel like, the video one is the one that scares me the most. So that's where I'm, I'm going to go all in. But uh, I totally don't underestimate how much time doing anything at your guys' level is like the testament. I think you've been at it for 10 years, which is a true testament to, um, you know, your why and your passion for doing it. Yeah, close to it. Eight and a half. Bananas. Let's just I love round that. up. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much, man. I really appreciate it. And so does the audience. Jordan, it's been great. Thanks for having me. Great stuff. I, I definitely understand maybe taking off too much time and then going crazy. If you're already an entrepreneur and you're already a little bit hyper, taking too much time off would drive me nuts too. Fascinating insight on the molding of the mind from criminal to evolving all the way to entrepreneur. I think those things probably have more in common than maybe some of us would like to think. And I love the concept, of course, hustling to help, adding value wherever you can. One of the core concepts here at The Art of Charm, not a show goes by where we don't mention and discuss that as well. So hopefully you guys took a lot out of this as I did. And remember, guys and girls, the show is about you. It's run by you. It's a fanarchy. I rely on you to keep my finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know, jordan at theartofcharm.com. If you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Dan on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show. And I'm on Twitter as well, at The Art of Charm. That's at The Art of Charm. I post articles, insights, and other stuff that just never makes it to the show. Our live bootcamp details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And remember, we're sold out six months in advance, so if you're thinking about it even a little bit, get in touch ASAP, get some info from us so you can plan ahead. And on the website is not only the blog with tons of amazing articles, but our bonus episodes that aren't released in the iTunes feed for those of you who just can't get enough Art of Charm. Subscribe in iTunes, write us a review, I'll love you forever. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Now tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 